Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to my favorite time of the week. And we are very honored to have Charlotte Valer. Uh, Charlotte has had a fascinating career. At the moment, uh, her group is called the Global Governance Group. And she was formerly the chair of the Institute of Directors, the IOD. She's currently the chair of Blackstone, uh, Blackstone Group. And she's a member of the Primary Markets Group at the London Stock Exchange. And she's a NED to a number of organizations, including Langer Rourke, and NTR. Charlotte, great to have you on the series. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Uh, it's lovely having you here. So let's go straight into the, the kind of roles that you're doing at the moment um, and the journey that took you, your life journey that took you into the kind of work you're doing now. Thank you. Well, I guess my life journey started in Denmark, where, where I'm originally born. Um, going into banking uh, straight from A-level as an apprentice. Uh, after a few years really feeling uh, that being a stock exchange trader was quite a good idea. And in the happy 80s, um, that was uh, a very different way of operating. So, so I managed to get myself onto the London Stock Exchange uh, floor dealing and uh, running mortgage-backed securities and uh, all these kind of interesting things. Uh, during the 87 crash, which was also interesting. <laughs> but it, you learn a lot from those things. I then moved to London uh, in 91 and was in a dealing rooms in London throughout uh, the 90s uh, until I had my first child in 99, took a couple of years out and set up my own company, which uh, eventually then led me to do a joint venture and move to Jersey in 2006. Uh, and from there on, I got asked, would I go on various boards? Um, which I wasn't really that interested in because I was quite busy. But in the end, I said yes, and we um, and then that started 15 years ago. My career as uh, within corporate governance, which I have been smitten by. But through all out that, I have very strong focus on on the things that I have uh, today interest in. Um, I did realize five years ago that I, I I'm also autistic, and that has definitely made my career. That is a really interesting area, and we Ben and you and I had a discussion before we came on air um, because I found also that I'm neurodiverse. My mine is um, uh, dyslexia. I can't even get the word out, can I? <laughs> I have a problem. Spelling, uh, reading, writing, and maths. And, and I just thought, and I was told by my teacher when I was about seven that I was thick and I was going to become a dustman uh, unless I could improve my maths. And for years, uh, believed I was thick. And people that know me now probably still think I'm thick, but but I was convinced. <laughs> I think that's how I ended up being Ben, visiting professor of leadership at Cass Business School to prove that <laughs> teach were wrong. But, but tell us, Charlotte, you, know, you were talking about the fact that your son is, is autistic and, and you were encouraged to take the test and find out that, that you were neurodiverse with the autism, but you also thought you were dumb and people said, you know, you're not very bright. But Tell us a bit about that and how, how you, you came out about it and, and the impact of 
the impact of neurodiversity um, you set up? It was it it was quite odd. I didn't do very well in school at all. Um, I was distinctly unfocused um, and in my own world. Unfortunately, my mother died when I was seven from breast cancer. So it was always probably put to that as being the reason I was so, so absent and in my own world, except my sister wasn't. <laughs> but obviously, we're different people. So um, I just slaved my way through. And it wasn't until I started in banking that I really found what I really loved. And that made me really focus a lot on on doing well in at work. Well, it wasn't that I focused on. I just liked it. So I just automatically kind of did well, right? And yes. then I just read. I guess I have a tendency to read for things that are quite a little bit out of my reach. Um, maybe I just haven't got this awareness of you shouldn't do that. I just do it. And then it, it happened that I got it on several occasions. So that reinforced that behavior. Obviously, for better. I, I I love that, and um, my experience with uh, many of the senior executives, CEOs, chairmen uh, that I've come across in the top of some organisations, mainly in the sort of commercial and financial services sector, is there's quite a high proportion who are neurodiverse, and yeah. they often find out, like you did, reverse way from their son, and that the teachers go this because, of course, in our days, no one tested us; they just they just wrote us off or made a judgment yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, very interested that you were involved in mortgage-backed securities because uh, having read many books around this topic, listening to audio books, because that's my way of learning, um, that, that obviously this was at the basis of many of the problems. Did you know at the time? Because what came in some of the great books about how they discovered that the crash was going to come um, in 2008 was a couple of the people, particularly very clever autistic um, bankers spotted what was happening. Did yeah. you find you were aware all those time ago that there was a problem with this? It would lead to problems. Could you see it then? <clears throat> we didn't see it at the time, but I say when I traded mortgage-backed securities was back in the eighties, and in Denmark, everyone who has a house has a has a loan in the house of of length of thirty years. So for us, it's all very normal that you buy a house and there's a loan in it, and you can trade in and out of that loan even as a private investor. Um, right. So they serve a very functional purpose, if you see what I mean. That, so um, we didn't really see the issues that could come along with it. And I think there are some slight differences on the American uh, mortgage-backed securities to the ones we have uh, in Denmark. Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. And, and thinking back to yourself when you were 18-year-old, and as you say, uh, it's interesting, neurodiverse people, particularly female neurodiverse leaders, and you found that 80% of those who got to the level that you've got to as chair, Ned, CEO, when you really challenge them, they realize that they've probably got children who are neurodiverse and they're, and they're quite masculine in the way the brain works and thinks. Um, you, you describe yourself as quite a tomboy as you're growing up, which is quite interesting. Yeah. What, what? Well, my dad kept telling me, I didn't actually really notice. My dad just kept saying, you're such a tomboy. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't play football. I was not very good at sport at all. So, Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting. And I just see Sean Taylor's on. Sean, lovely to have you on with your, your comments. And uh, any, any anyone in the derivative world had an inkling, uh, as you were saying then. But um, uh, this this thing about you back at 18 years old as a tomboy, what bit of advice with the wisdom you've accumulated now from lots of successes and probably lots of mistakes as we all do make, would you give your 18 year old self 
that's a good bit of wisdom from now all that you've learned yeah. to back I would I would it as it happened I was lucky but pursue what you feel passionate about and ensure that you know yourself right self-development is one of the key areas and so I have teenage children and I tell them just those things for me those are really really important you know we can know a lot of rich people that are not very happy or content in their lives so I think what you need to do is to fulfill your own personal purpose and have some awareness of it. And that will lead you in the right direction throughout your life. Yeah. And that's, that comes across so strongly. Those who have a sense of meaning and purpose. Indeed, I was reading an article about how to cope with mental health issues, which I had some uh, earlier uh, this year. And, and before that, when things were so tough, that um, having a sense of meaning and purpose in your life really can, can, cope, can help you cope with that. Um, so, so great that you've, you know, fulfilling your purpose. As you think back over that life journey, you've done an awful lot in your life. Um, what, what have been your proudest moments and some of your darkest moments and, and what did they teach you? It's, it's interesting every time we talk about that, I always have to sort of say, well, well, there are two kinds, right? So you've got your personal proudest and darkest and you've got your business proudest and darkest. I think we, if we try to mix those, the personal ones will always be bigger. Um, for me, they, they certainly, I mean, for me, I mean, the, the, the proudest, everything to do with my children. I mean, it, it's uh, giving birth to a child is just beyond this world. It's just one of the biggest things you can experience. <clears throat> and I wish for everybody to have that experience. It, it was just extraordinary. And once I had one, I wanted another and another. And we were trying for number four, but luckily I couldn't have any more. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I would have had more. So I have three now, and I'm very blessed, very, very blessed. Um, every single day, uh, they achieve something. I'm, I'm. It's like uh, extremely proud. And also, they're the only people in the world that I will give my life for within a snaps. I wouldn't even think about it. I would just do it. But obviously, I wouldn't for anyone else because I have to be there for my children, right? Yeah. And I think, and to to I think on career wise. I really did feel incredibly proud when I became the chair of the IOD. It was uh, definitely a step up in terms of profile and everything. And I never saw myself as part of the establishment. <clears throat> so I, I did say to them when they approached me and said, Would you, we've had your name put in the hat. I said, look, I don't think I'm appropriate for that role. I'm not, I'm not the kind of people you have. And by the way, you need change. And don't talk to me if you don't want change. So... They talk and they had, and I was surprised till I didn't know till the very day they told me, uh, and it was, it felt surprising, yeah. But it was very, I was very proud. And the, the saddest time was uh, when, unfortunately, I divorced my children's father ten years ago. Um, and after a couple of years, it was not possible for me to financially still be in the same house that my children had been in for many years, and I had to sell it because I didn't earn enough money. That was not great. That was pretty low. That was a low year, a very low year. Yeah. Yeah, I think anybody who's been through separation, divorce, as I have as well, it's, it, I think, the grimmest part of their it's life. Not good. No. And, and if it's not the darkest part of their night, then, then something's a bit wrong that they, they really don't care about people or their children or. Yeah. The I mean, I'm, 
I'm lucky my children are healthy because if they were not, that would be my darker past, right? I mean, because nothing, I can't imagine anything worse than your children somehow becoming very ill or maybe even dying that I cannot even think about that without tearing up. No, I, I completely get that. And, and in work-wise, what, what has been a dark moment for you in all the different roles and different jobs and things you've done? <clears throat> to be honest, it was quite difficult at the end at the IOD and I had to make a decision that was, uh, that was uh, very difficult for me to make, which was uh, to leave a position before my term was up. That's not something I do uh, likely and it took me months to come to that decision. Uh, it was very disappointing and I was quite concerned that it would also affect how people would view me professionally. Uh, but I would hope that 38 years of working hard and doing okay wouldn't be overshadowed by that. So I, so that was not great. I was made redundant as well back in the 90s, but so was everyone else. <laughs> so it's like, okay, just get out, put your head down and get another job. So, so that happened relatively quickly. So that was fine. But I learned from all of that, right? I, I mean, I learned from those things. I mean, I learned uh, to reach for what is out of reach right or what is perceived to be out of reach i think that's a great learning that i've probably done a lot of my life but now when i when you come up you know the pyramid it gets sort of narrower and narrower the the higher to the top you come so you have to reach for things that feel, you it feels quite you feel quite vulnerable when you reach for positions that you kind of feel maybe maybe it's not for me but then you then i say to myself well i'll reach for it and then it's the people who judge me in the in the interviews that will have to make that decision, right? And yes. and I think um, the biggest learning is is around becoming a parent and how to love someone more than you love yourself in your own life. Yeah, love, love is a, a very key component. We talk it about really is. yeah, love, trust, and the rules. In uh, Professor Roger Steer, my friend, who did the moral DNA coding, but these are the three things that we look at in ethics and ethicability. And and often people forget about that. Yeah. Uh, indeed, when I was doing the inspiring leadership book, I was going to call it loving leadership, because I think really inspiring leaders who have humility and humanity and humour, like you yeah. do, you have all three. Really, chuckling yeah. away with you before we started. Um, they they also love and care for the people they lead, and also their own family too. That balance between the two, because you can get it so badly wrong. You're so focused on your work. Yeah people who actually are your biggest legacy. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then I was just going to ask you, um, habits, uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's, this, is, this is Ben's three little ones, and I think they're, they're, they're great. What, what would be a, a tip that's kept you healthy during the pandemic? Um, and how do you, uh, particularly having been through a time of having to lose your house with the divorce and things, what, what lesson have you learned about money and what bit of wisdom would you share? For us all to listen to. So I think with um, with healthy, it really, I mean, apart from obviously living healthily, eating well, exercising, and this, I'm, I move a lot. Uh, maybe I even have a bit of ADHD as well. I don't know. <laughs> but, so I get natural exercise all the time because I just move a lot. I walk very fast. I do everything fast. Um, so I think healthy is is very much for me on the on the mental on the mental keep mentally healthy uh, and. 
I feel that we do that better when we live by our own inner purpose. But I think too many people are not fully aware of their own purpose and, and your own purpose is built of your passions and your values, right? That becomes your purpose. And and I guess when I'm passionate about something, I'm I'm very passionate. And that's probably the, the autistic part of me that comes in there. And therefore I have been driving that way automatically. So even though life has been quite challenging um, at times from when I was very young, my passions have sort of carried me through and that focus I was able to have on, on those things and then eliminate everything else. I don't focus on negativity. I, I'm, I focus on the positive outcome of whatever happens and where we can drive ourselves positively. And, and I think that has helped me um, with my finances. I was always uh, someone who saved money. I always had backup money in the bank. Um, this was the one point when I had to sell the house in my life where it just ran out and I was a single mom with three kids and it was tough and there was nowhere to turn. So that, that really taught me when I looked at, at my business at the time, uh, I had a couple of directorships as well and I thought this is really unhealthy that I'm so dependent on income from directorships that cannot, that cannot work at all. So that's why I would rather take down my cost as much as I could to relieve myself from being uh, de so dependent on income from a, a company you're serving as a director. So I will always ensure that I have twice as much income than I need so that there's no single job. What could you lose independence if you're that, if you're financially dependent on a job, right? So you don't make the right decisions because you're too scared to lose lose the job. So this is a really, really key learning and I'll pass it on to as many people as I can. Never be financially dependent on something where your independence is really, really needed. Um, so, and in terms of wise, I think it just is that ongoing self-development, especially after 40, I trained uh, as a kinesiologist as well, where we, we sort of alternative healing or whatever you want. And that sort of, um, it just rounds you to do all different things. Uh, I'm a painter as well. I paint abstract oil on canvas and that helps. Uh, wisdom in a sense that when I do that, it kind of clears things out and you can then listen to to the voice from within, which is where we have quite a lot of wisdom sitting that we are not always listening to. Fascinating. We've got a couple of, we've got a number of questions. Um, uh, if we could put Don McIntyre's question, um, if you can see there, you come across as very pragmatic, grounded, and will play the hand you're dealt. Is this natural or something you've consciously worked on, Charlotte? I, I think it's natural. Uh, I, I actually can't be anything but me, <laughs> so it's a bit, uh, when people were playing role plays and stuff like that, I just can't, I never did. I just don't, it doesn't, uh, my sister used to be really good at being two different people in, like we were in one place and she would be one way and it was always hugely confusing to me how she could be different in different places. I just can't, it's, it's, not, it's not within me. I can't yeah. lie either, which is not always great because lies are kind of <laughs> sometimes, but my son can't either. So I never ask him, does my bum look big in this? Because he'll probably say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. Well, that was the, uh, we were discussing that lovely play that in the book, the Curious Incident of the Dog of the Night about the son who was uh, autistic and an investigator. He, he looked into a murder and found out it's just a great story. Um, Catherine Bordino, um, who I know and uh, like very much, can we hear more from Charlotte about setting boundaries? Mm. Setting boundaries is not always easy, and it, that is something I've had to consciously work on. Um, 
I find it very hard to say no. So, so actually, my children has helped me uh, find that in their life. Could you just not spend all this time uh, helping so many people uh, because we want time with you? And that's the kind of thing I needed to hear that actually I need to 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 give to the people that that deserves it first, which is my children, um, and then give. So, so, uh, so. I had to also, so with children as being a parent, you also have to set boundaries. And I promised myself it happened, as it probably happens to all parents sometimes, that you just explode in anger, right? Because they push your buttons in so many ways. And I don't like myself when I do that at all. So it happened a few times. And I thought, I have to set the boundaries before I get this angry. And that is my responsibility, not someone else's. So yeah. so those, so it sounds as if a lot came around my children, but it because it did. They were really pushing me um, quite hard. Why with business is just business. I don't get too sort of bogged up with it. But uh, but but when emotions are in play, it's hard, right? Yeah, that's really good response. And I I've been enjoying listening to an audio book called "Don't Sweat the Small Stuff," and it's all small stuff. Yeah. And um, Dr. Carlson is the guy who wrote the book, Richard Carlson. And um, in it, he said. You don't need to catch every ball that's thrown at you. And I'm a bit like you. And certainly my wife, Lee, charity and coaches and speaks and does podcasts. She catches almost every ball that's thrown at her. And I tend to do the same. And, and we just we don't have to catch every ball. Um, someone gave me a good technique. I don't know. You've tried it yourself where it's literally when they ask you, you say, well, thank you. I'm greatly honored you've asked me that. My heart says I'd love to do that. But my head says, I know I have not got the space for that. And if I did that, I'd spend less time with my wife and my four children. And I don't do that. And I'm not prepared to sacrifice for them. So, so I think making people that, get that, right? Yeah. Don't, you know, they're not the right kind of people anyway if yeah. they don't respect you, no. you your own life. Um, there's, a, there's a great book on um, that from a guy called Derek um, Sivers. He did a TED talk on it as well. And it's um it's a real simple just filter. Every time you're given like a proposition or an ask or something that someone wants you to do, if it's not hell yeah, it's probably a no. Yeah. And that that's how he sort of um, filters yeah. all the things he's offered. If it's not a hell yeah, not a yeah maybe it has yeah. to be a hell yeah, and then yeah. then it's then it's a yes. Good one. I, I um, love that, and that's really good. And also a friend of mine, um, his name's just gone out of my head, but it'll come to me. Um, he uh, uses the, the four box matrix when you're making a decision, head, heart, gut, and wallet. And um, does it make logical sense, you know, uh, with 89 billion neurons? Does it resonate with your heart and what you love doing? Does your gut feel right about it? And, and logically, is the money and everything else that goes with it, does it make sense? It's more for recruiting. Um, and, and I thought that, that was great. Um, the, the final bit, the bit of wisdom. What was, what was your bit of wisdom? We had your, your money, but what would bit of wisdom that you'd pass on to people? A bit of, you know, really good practical common sense. So, so in terms of passing wisdom on or how I develop it, I, I mean, I think wisdom on, bit of a wisdom. For me, you, you must follow your passions. I honestly think that the people who don't do that end up depressed um, because your body knows when you don't do it, right? And, and so everything I'm involved with um, has to do with one way or the other, making the world a better place. 
that's my passion, right? And and equality is my passion. So it's it's those things everything evolves around now. It didn't do it back in the eighties when I was stock exchange trader, right? That was more sort of a survival game, but I had a lot of fun as well. But it was like everybody eats everybody. But uh, but now I can actually say no. I want to improve governance, improve leadership, so we make better decisions and leave a better world. Um, and I want to do everything I can so that we have equality for everyone. I've just written a blog around uh, discrimination of men because men get very discriminated at fathers, especially, and we need to fix that. When we fix that, we fix you know inequality for women too. I'm pleased you say that. Having dealt, as I've had to do with courts quite a lot, um, I find the courts very biased towards the ex-wife and not the uh, the husband, even though yes, they are. The, the date they go they go no no oh the poor victorian era women you know they're poor thing no they're completely independent and able to look after themselves that's right in many cases not in all cases because we also run a charity for vulnerable women and we come across many who are being abused and need help yeah um great fantastic as always charlotte um my last two questions before i hand over to ben um what, in your view, makes a good, inspiring leader? And who would you consider a couple of inspiring leaders? These are my two questions for you. I mean, for me, I'm back on the passion, right? An inspiring leader is someone who has passion because that passion comes across. And when you talk with passion, people listen and they remember and you and you, you touch your emotions, you show your own abilities and you touch people's emotions. And I think that's what leaders should be doing so that people will, will follow them, right? I mean, I mean, one of my sort of all-time big uh, uh, leaders that I look up to is Martin Luther King, unfortunately not alive anymore. But I mean, he made people follow him at a very young age, right? With a, with a humble passion and with non-violent sort of disobedience, if you want. I just think he was extraordinary, an extraordinary human being. And then clearly they felt he was so extraordinary, they need to uh, get rid of him, unfortunately, which is often what happens to the good people. Well, if bad people kills good people, uh, good people tend to not kill bad people, so the bad people generally survive more. That's my little pocket. Uh, <laughs> pocket. No, no, I, I think it's very true, and I'm a bit concerned in the American situation whether Biden and Harris will get taken out by some lunatic fringe Trump supporter. Yeah. Like that his person hasn't won and they won't accept that they've lost. Um, you just don't know. It's a risk, right? It's a risk. I mean, Jacinda Ardern is, is, is another fantastic current leader that really shows the way to, to how you can lead with kindness. I love that. It, it, we need much, much more of that uh, in the world of, of people I have closer in, in my circles. Um, Ray Rook from Langerbrook is, is a leader I have a huge amount of respect for. I, I watch him how he leads a, a, a massive uh, construction company that's led it through COVID. Um, I mean, he has strong values and people, Ray Rook, right? So he's one of the owners of Langerbrook. People just follow him in, in, in thick and thin. It's just extraordinary how the how the staff really care uh, care for him and how he cares for them, all of them, all sort of eight thousand or whatever of them. So that's that. Those kind of leaders are quite special. Um, and another one is Margaret Casley Hayford that um, I've had the pleasure to to work a little bit with through um, Board Princes, a charity that I run to get uh, diverse leaders onto board. She just gives and gives and gives and and. Um, she, I mean, I reached out to her, she didn't know me at all. 
and just talked about how this was a very important area and she's been an amazing ambassador in, in pushing things forward to make changes at leadership level. Thank you very much. Ben, over to you. Great. Charlotte, it's been a great interview so far. Um, really, really inspiring. Um, anybody that's listening, if you've got any questions, we'd love to hear from you or any comments. Um, please do post them up and we'll then include them in the interview. Um, I think that uh, you, you, you're quite clearly sort of inspiring on, on loads of different levels, um, Charlotte. And uh, um, something that I was picking on, up on particularly is, is, is um, you seem to have uh, an ability to still sort of reach for for that next thing that next sort of um sort of rung on the ladder and, and be really quite confident within it within it and um i think probably that, that a lot of people who are maybe not neurotypical and 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 women don't always do that have you got any good advice to people to 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 sort of reach for things which maybe seem seemingly outside their comfort area it's, a little it's bit the fear. you have to remove the fear so, so fear is manufactured in our mind. Fear is not real, right? Mm -hmm. Love is real. We feel it. It's we are love, right? Fear is not real. Anything fear that you put into your head is manufactured. It's a fear of this could happen or that could happen. And this. Oh, this happened in the past. And then you protect your fears from the past into the future or into the now mm -hmm. when you don't know, right? So the one yeah. thing I said to myself, but probably tainted by my mother dying when, when I was so young and she was only 36. Um, the life that she didn't have, it was like, you know, at least I could honor her by making sure that I lived to the full and didn't just, so my dad also, who, who also unfortunately passed away 10 years ago, he always said to me, jump on life before life jumps on you. And I thought that's the one I've been holding on to because, you know, you've got to steer your life. You make decisions mm. every day, right? Every one of us make decisions every day. Every one of us are leaders of ourselves, right? Mm. First you lead yourself, then you might lead a team, and then you might lead something bigger. But we all lead ourselves every single day. And if we don't accept that we make decisions every day, and they're our decision, we can also make a decision to not make a decision, which is giving our power away. But that is still a decision, right? Yeah. So, so I think that the fear, watch out for the fear. It's manufactured. It doesn't exist. Kill it. Yeah, I love that. I, I really, really like that that way of thinking of things. And and I often sort of look at things when when that sort of fear comes up, and and just always say, well, what what's the worst that can happen? What what's, right. what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And if you live your life in fear, I used to say, yeah. I don't want to be fifty and look back and think, why didn't I do this, that, and the other? Because nothing happened, right? But yeah. now that I am past fifty, I have to say, I don't want to be seventy-five and look back <laughs> and think, why didn't I do this? So. I have done what I wanted to do. I have reached for what I wanted to reach for. I moved mm. country and, and lived on my own away from my family. All my family is still back in Denmark. Yeah, that was a bit uncomfortable, right? But it yeah. didn't kill me. And, and, and you become stronger every time you go through hard times. You're out on the other side. You are stronger. It might not initially feel like it, but you are stronger, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and most things are, are, are reversible as well. You can, totally. yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, no, fantastic, and and I think that's probably hit a nerve with a few people. Um, Catherine has um, made made the comment. Um, Re fear too right. I often re recommend feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely, it's, uh, it's exhilarating. Sometimes it makes you yeah. alive. It makes you feel I'm alive, right? 
if we yeah. just sit and hide in our house, it's just uh, not good for us. Yeah, definitely. And Except um, we've got... we're in isolation, of course. Sure. <laughs> we've got a, a question from Claire who'd like to know where you see yourself in five years' time. So, uh, so I have a five-year plan of growing, uh, growing my company that I started back in 2009 mm -hmm. um, to be more of a global governance group um, that could have an impact globally. I'm, I'm uh, publishing a book um, about governance, funny that, um, hopefully in Q1 um, of next year um, about what questions to ask in a boardroom and that will be published as an open access so people can download it for free everywhere. We work a lot in, in the Commonwealth and in, in, uh, in developing countries on, on helping them with governance and work with London Stock Exchange as well on that. And, and I would like to hope that in five years time that organisation is, um, is, has its own value and it can either be passed on to other people or I can develop it further. Um, it can be something that stays stays beyond me. Okay, so obviously we've all gone through a collective experience over the last year of um, of COVID, and it's been one which has affected people in in many different ways. It'd be great to sort of know what what happened um, in, in in your life, both professionally and, and personally, because of uh, of the the COVID crisis. To be absolutely honest, it, it, it kind of did me a favour because the right. couple of years before had been so full on, um, especially with, with the IOD, that I had literally mm. travelled every week uh, for, for right. a year. I was, I was shattered, right? Mm. I was so tired. So it was like, right, you can now not travel. I was like, ooh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, less travel was, uh, was great. And, and the realisation that we can now have a board meeting with the board pack on an app and forget about printing the stuff and, yeah. and actually move on to that next level, something I've been pushing in many boardrooms for. Now mm. we were forced to, and I was quite happy with that as well, <laughs> uh, to be honest, because it needed to happen and it is yeah. here and we shouldn't uh, take all the trees down to make paper all the time, right? Yeah. So I think less travel, better focus because the travel time was taken out so I can really be strongly focused and, and I've created a lot more um more things like papers and, and writings and I, what i what i used to mm -hmm. um it has had a, a small financial impact in in terms of the boards i serve on for example of course the non-sector directors uh, fees go went down in line with the cut in salaries for the for the companies and that should happen everywhere mm -hmm. i don't think it has happened everywhere but but that should be a given uh, we all share the pain together, right? And and I would say that there's better business prospects for my organization um, because governance has come, in, come into the limelight um, and we work with CEOs and how they get the, bus, the board to have trust in them. Uh, many CEOs have had difficulties during this and, mm. uh, and there's an increase in interest in learning more about how to develop trust with boards. So, yeah. so that's good, and the general governance is so. So, countries outside of of the UK want to have more knowledge around the governance that we run in the UK, where we are ahead of the game, uh, alongside uh, sort of Australia and Canada, and uh, and we're very good at that piece. But the whole purpose and uh, social impact and environmental intent has come into that, which we are less good at. But where I can draw on my experiences from Scandinavia. Mm.
So with um, with that, uh, the, the knock-on effect of COVID within leadership and teams, um, what do you think it's going to, to the residual effects going to be for, for 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 leading well and and building teams and, and and getting a sort of team culture? It's quite difficult to say exactly what it should be. What I would like to see um, it be is that we have we get flatter structures um, where people have more direct responsibility and accountability that they are happy to take. It's not having to have a boss sitting on top of you telling you what to do. So people mm. actually, and I think the younger generations will do this quite naturally, grab hold of what needs to be done and just do it. Um, now that we are working from home in, in, in many ways, um, in some places productivity has gone up, right? Mm. Um, because people actually are more rested and are more able to do what they want to do. So I think, and I hope that this will, will stay with us and mm. um, the ability to work from home obviously when you deal with construction for example uh, we, we can't be at home <laughs> but what what it has done for example is accelerate the off-site manufacturing which is really really helpful where you can actually uh, construct like a one or two bedroom flat in a factory with all yeah. um with all robotics doing that which means that the traditional scaffolding and this way at, at Langerouk we don't really use it's all cranes lifting pre pre-manufactured um, items onto, which means we can build a skyscraper pretty quickly. Uh, but actually the one bedroom flat comes in with fully fitted kitchen, fully fitted bathroom by robotics and all your health and safety concerns or many of them reduces as well. So all good stuff. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've um, the, a lot of the clients I, I talk to, talk to um, the, the process they've gone, been through and they're going through like a trust revolution because they've they've had to send everybody Absolutely. home and they're all working from home they they've got to change the way they manage and the way they trust their employees to get things done um i, I don't know if, you, if you've got any advice to people to, to to build that sort of level of trust absolutely um, i mean so i've been I, I spend a lot of time talking about trust um mm. so so there's something called the trust equation which is which is trust is equals credibility reliability and intimacy confidence and stuff like that divided by self-orientation or ego or self-interest so the bigger your ego and self-interest is the less trustworthy you will come across right so when you work from home and your self-interest is i want to be asleep all day um then you're not reliable and you're not credible right so so therefore trust in you will be low so if mm. everybody would have a look at the trust equation i didn't make it unfortunately someone else very clever did but uh, uh that is why while considering when I'm reliable, when I'm credible, when I keep confidentiality and can have intimate conversations, um, then people trust in me. I like that. I like that. And conversely, for 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 um, for managers, how do they build their trust um, personally? I think so it's pretty much the same, right? It's the same principle because when you have managers that lead from their ego or mm. from their self agendas, they make bad decisions. Mm. They make decisions that are for them, not for the organization. Uh, so, so it was interesting, I just saw an article uh, recently about corporate psychopaths, which I think we have all experienced, <laughs> which are generally people who have too high egos, and mm. therefore they go into manipulation and lies and and making things opaque, and there's lots of red flags that are, we probably mm. all experienced. And it's but 
but generally often I mean boards don't want to get rid of them because somehow they fall for the manipulation and the the, the grandeur as well and we have to start watching out for that a bit more um, people are not so interested because psychopaths is a bad word we don't want to talk about it but it's all around <laughs> us and it's driven by a very core ego mm. ego that's too big for its own health right yeah and eventually they will fall over but in it if we leave them there for too long they do a lot of damage yeah yeah it's strange isn't it how how, how people like that can often do very well and 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 they often create toxic environments around around them because right. people believe they've got to act in a specific way and um the knock-on effects can be massive massively damaging yeah. to to trust and in the company and and yeah. financially as well there's been yeah. huge cases where that's 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 happened um so within the the process we've been through this this year there has been some real ups and downs there's been just the, the crises which um people could couldn't have predicted but do you have any tips uh, around leading and, and being prepared for, for for crisis and and change because um i don't think the people were were, were um, very ready for, for for what happened this year but i think that people can be yeah so so for me i really like uh, in terms of change i really like john cotter's eight steps of change a lot mm. um, and you can actually transfer them from organizational change uh, onto societal change um, and cultural changes in that the first two steps you really need to have in place is um is a sense of urgency without a sense of urgency you will have no change if people don't feel it urgently needs to be changed no one will change anything right so if you don't have that, forget about it. Don't spend your time on it, right? But if you do have that, then the next step is to get a supportive coalition. But they have to be powerful. So it has to be many people putting a lot of pressure. Think of Black Lives Matter. Everyone rose suddenly. That was the, the supportive coalition for change. Mm. And change in boardrooms, sorry, conversations in the boardrooms I was uh, uh, working with at, at the time changed from an acceptance that actually there are unknown unknowns with regards mm. to race that we now want to be more aware of. And so that was because we had the two things, we had a sense of urgency and we had a strong supportive coalition of change, which was everyone rising. Many mm. people are still very powerful, right? That would, it's always, that will always be very powerful. So I think, I think the tips in, in how to manage it is stay close to your values mm. and keep that ego in check. <laughs> Excellent, excellent advice. Um, uh, and and you, you mentioned ego quite a lot within that, but um, are there any other mistakes you see people making in, um, in, in leadership? To be absolutely honest, the mistakes I see people make are often driven from the self-agendas, which is very mm. sad, but very true when you, when you drill down into it. So you look at many, many of the, the big uh, mess ups that has been in all kinds of different ways. So Carillion, right, why did the board not ask enough questions? Well, maybe for their self-interest, they were happy with the position, but they weren't really wanting to put the full time in. Uh, you know, it all, it, when you really dig in, it comes back into where are the egos? And, and maybe they mm -hmm. did want to, but maybe they had executive teams that mm -hmm. was not making things transparent enough so that they couldn't actually see what was going on. So, but but then if you ask questions and things are opaque, then you know this is a red flag, you're dealing with dysfunction and you need to 
dig in deeper, spend more time, speak to the people in organizations. I mean, I have uh, years ago, I, I had a situation where I always go away when we as a board go around to organizations and, and to speak to anyone on the floor, right? To, you know, the cleaner, the secretary, whoever, because you get a lot of really good information that way. <laughs> and I worked with uh, some activist investment managers for five years. So um, I learned a lot of good tips from them. And uh, and that's sort of digging around in the bins a little bit and, and speaking to everyone. And you know then what goes on. I found out that the CEO was a complete bully, right? Mm. Threw big books around in the room uh, when when they got angry. and was And it was really scary for the people around them. But in the boardroom, they were pussycats right <laughs> so we didn't see that but the staff did and mm. then we understood why maybe some of the, the productivity of some of the staff was not great and then we had to address that by saying you need an anchor management course um or, or that was the first level and he took it and and he was very upset in the beginning that we said that but he understood as he went along that that mm. helped him a lot yeah so that's courageous, really interesting <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, and it, it speaks really to your to your um, tip about having a flatter structure, and and Absolutely. and actually that 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 chain of command and that communication within ch right. chain of command breaks down when you have someone who's a, who's who's a bully because you tell them what they want to hear, right? They yeah, and they never, care. yeah, and they never actually have all the information no. um, because they're um, because they're blocking themselves. Yeah. Um, to, Do you know what's quite interesting? The, this blog I just posted a blog about discrimination from for men, male mm. discrimination, and I spoke to a couple of men about it. Found it interesting that it didn't attract very much interest um, as compared to to normally when I post something. And one uh, man said to me, "Well, actually." I kind of wanted to write something there, but then I got fearful because I felt it could affect my position at work, right? Mm. If, I, if I say, yes, that's right, men should have more time as fathers and we should have equal pay so that we don't have to be the breadwinners so that, that it's, it's, it's either or. It's, it's not men are forced into a corner on this issue, right? Mm. But men are actually fearful of speaking out of it, about it. That's really sad, right? Mm. That's really sad. We've got to take that away. Otherwise, we won't change anything, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it happens in, in a lot of situations that people, like you said, it, it takes there to be a, a big, big movement and a consensus so, so a lot of people yeah. can feel confident to speak out about stuff which, um, which they're feeling sort of every, every day. That's right. I mean, I'm thinking by the time I'm 65, I don't care anymore. I don't. <laughs> 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 then I'll be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, but I'll be an even bigger nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> what age does that happen? Does it? Do you think there's a there's a point that it just sort of clicks in? Yeah. So the point is when I don't have to pay for my children's education anymore. <laughs> ah. Right. So when they're off the table, I was like, right. Now I can be really outspoken. So I you know, yeah. I have to to sometimes hold back a bit as well because you don't want to be seen as a headline risk or but I speak my mind and I can't help that. It's just it's what I do. And some people say I'm trouble. I'm not quite sure how trouble for how trouble. I mean, what does that even mean? <laughs> and, and other boards I had applied to to join, uh, I got told that they didn't take me because I scared the life out of the board members. So I'm really? like, what does it mean? What does that mean? I don't understand. What, what do you think I'll punch them? I mean, what is it? Apparently, honesty and directness is very scary. Oh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's like you said, um, 
not being neurotypical has 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 been a, a plus point for you because because you are completely honest and um and uh and forthright about what, what, what you think which which is unusual i suppose <laughs> well but i'm lucky that it that we have gone into this place where we certainly love the word authentic <laughs> <laughs> yeah bring your authentic <laughs> self yeah <laughs> i was like great great if I'd been born Brilliant. years earlier, I would have been like dead meat, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I like authentic. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Love that. Um, so, Catherine's um, just uh, asked a, a question, just around: um, Do you think big egos surround themselves with um, yes men um, who do not question the ego's actions? Absolutely without any shadow of doubt yes because they cannot tolerate being questions it's it, they get like an ego ego injury when mm. you do that and that feels really really bad for them to have that they are not prepared to have people disagreeing like uh, trump. like trump might, yeah i mean it might <laughs> force them to grow right and they're actually not interested in growing uh, from the inside and so where i welcome my, one of my mottos is hire someone who doesn't fit in right because that way you get challenged and your presumptions and gets challenged and and I love getting challenged. If I sit in a room with people and we all agree on everything, how long can a conversation ever go? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just get and in I the e echo chamber. Yeah, I mean, how much do you learn from people who agree from you with you? You learn nothing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and time and time again, the the research shows that diversity just across the board means that you get better boards better decisions um more successful companies it makes makes perfect yeah. perfect sense I mean, for I, think, I mean nature meant it to be that nature creates mm. a diversity and i think nature meant for for cognitively all these different mindsets coming together and and that includes like neurodiversity as well but we get excluded mm. right in, in many ways yeah. we get excluded so so we miss out on some of that information we could have when we make decisions so we make the wrong decisions when we have now put it down to a very small group of homogeneous people making decisions in the world mm. and that's what we've done for some hundreds of years maybe longer we make the wrong decisions and i think if we look at the world today and judge the decisions that's been made and where we are we are a species that's killing ourselves wow mm. i mean that happens when you don't take everybody's opinion into account right yeah someone yeah. has to think different so so we so we as neurodiverse people are not very good at following rules if they don't make any logical sense right so so if someone asks me how are you it makes no sense to ask that question if you don't want to hear the answer right yeah. i mean so i want to tell you about <laughs> yeah. how i am but you're not that interested you just said it for some other reason that i don't get right so so i think when things so we challenge you know that's why schools find us so difficult but but that is also what changes the world. The people who follow the rules are important, right? Absolutely. But they don't change the world. Yeah, yeah. Great example when um, Greta um, uh, Thunberg and her uh, yeah. strike for climate strike for schools. She's... That's her own strike going on. Yeah. And, and that's created a movement, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's people thought, amazing. yeah, actually, she's right. What are we doing here? Right? Yeah. Yeah, what, yeah, what on earth are we doing? Always one person. Each one of us can change the world. Each one of us can be that Greta or that yeah. whoever, you know, Martin Luther King, whatever. We yeah. all have that ability in us. Every single one of us can go out there and be that one person that makes some change happen just like POW and you didn't even fight. 
understand how it happened, but it did generally from passion, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the passions that drives that. But but then the people who doesn't want to hear it are very quick to tear you down. I mean, Trump even spent time tearing down Greta because he took the most of his athletes, right? Yeah, yeah. Very low level. But and basically bullying as well. <laughs> Very low level. It, it's low. So you have know this vertical maturity level. Yeah. Seven yeah. levels. Like eighty-five percent of the population is on level one, two, and three. Trump is probably at level one. But what is his reason <laughs> to develop further? He's rich. Yeah. He was the president of America. He seems to get whatever woman he wants. But what are his reasons to change? Nil. There are yeah. no reasons for him to develop himself. Right. Yeah. So we've yeah. got to accept that a certain percentage of people are just that. And then we need to focus on the ones that might come along and self-develop and, and operate um, at a high level of, of consciousness, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, I, I don't know about you, but it does feel like a relief that he's not going to be in, in, in office anymore. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just thought, could he just misbehave a lot? Like the worse <laughs> he gets, hopefully the more, like especially younger people will get out voting. To, yeah. to change right and maybe it was last century holding on with the fingertips to you know to to power and maybe we're moving into a different paradigm now i'm hoping so i think the young people are different i the conversations i have with under 40 year olds are they are much yeah. focused on purpose on impacts and on values and i really enjoy that so we as as a sort of older generation should stand behind them Put them in the chair at the table, stand behind them and support them in making the right decisions for their future. Yeah. Like, because yeah. they would like to have a future. And I would like my children and my grandchildren and my great grandchildren to have a future, but they don't if we don't no. make some changes. Yeah. No. Very, very good point. Um, this has been fascinating and I could I could carry on talking to you for, for another couple of hours. Um, but we're we're sort of approaching the end of our, our time. So Last couple of questions, and if anybody's got any comments, please do post them up. But I think this brings us quite nicely on to what, what you would like your legacy um, to be for the for the future. So so I used to want to be like a Mother Teresa, but I, people kept saying, you're just not, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, fair enough. But I really think she gets her points across in really good ways that I would find. But yeah, I'm not, right? I'm not. Um, but I would like to to be remembered as being a change maker mm. that has worked hard to make the play the, the world a better place, you know, when I leave it than it was when I when I entered. Right now, through from when I was born in the sixties to now, it's 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 not better. It's not mm. better. Mm. We have to work harder to make it a better place. That's what I would like uh people to remember me for doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they will do. And um, final question, um, we always ask for a book recommendation, just something that's been in, uh, inspiring to you, either in your life or, or just something um, during lockdown. So so it wouldn't come as a huge surprise that 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 the book recommendation that, that I would, that I've just given to my son as well is actually Love is Letting Go of Fear, ah, which right. is a book that talks just about, you know, how peace of mind comes from wanting to not change other people, you just love them the way they are. Mm. And then you're much a piece uh, of mind, true acceptance of differences. Mm. And and that fear is is something that's made up, right? We yeah. are love. That's what we are. That's what, what, what we bring out. Fear is made up. And we have to continue to remember fear is not real. And that book teaches you that. Oh, fantastic. If I could pick up from Ben, Ben, thank you. Uh, Charlotte, I've been scribbling notes 
all over my notepad. <laughs> Frantically, there's some great uh, stimulation you've given all the listeners. Thank, Thank you. you very much. When we finish in a moment, would you please stand in line while we'll, we'll Ben and I were Karen chatting with you? But um, I just want to say on behalf of everybody, thank you uh, for coming and being on the show. And I wish Global Governance Group every success. I'm sure it will be with the, the wisdom and the, and the frankness. And it's great seeing how uh, fellow neurodiverse people can say it as it is. I was always told off. I wrote a book called The Army Needs More Mavericks. And the general told me, <laughs> nice book, and don't publish it if you want a career. And sadly, I didn't publish it. I should have done. But anyway, shall I? Yeah, yeah. I'll have to rewrite it now. But Charlotte, thank you. Fabulous. Really, really good. And uh, to everyone who's attended. Yeah, we've all gained a lot. Some great questions. Thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed. What are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com. Or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.